I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He's an intensely controversial figure who led Britain to victory in the Second World War. He's said to have dictated his famous speeches from the bath and recently inspired a box office busting film starring Gary Oldman. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. But not everyone relishes his legacy. Just this week, an astronaut was criticised for quoting him from space. Not, alas, my guest today, but the subject of his biography, Winston Churchill. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, in a world of 21st century turmoil, what would Churchill do? Andrew Roberts is a British historian who first addressed his subject over two decades ago, and since then, by my reckoning, he's written around five books with Churchill in the title or subtitle. Now he's taken on the mammoth task of biography. His latest book is called Churchill Walking with Destiny. Andrew Roberts, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much indeed, Anne. Destiny in history, often a word we distrust, the great foe Adolf Hitler of of Winston Churchill talked about destiny. Why is Churchill walking with destiny in a way that we should admire? Theologically, um, it probably doesn't exist, does it? However, the important thing is that Winston Churchill believed his own destiny did exist and had a tremendously powerful personal sense of it. And on the day he became Prime Minister, um, he wrote later of that day that he felt as if he were walking with destiny and that all his past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And the way in which he used destiny and had constantly referred to it all the way through his life was absolutely epicentral to understanding him. You calculate that Churchill published over six million words in some 37 books, uh, more certainly by a factor of of something has been written about him since his death from every possible angle. So why do we need another book? Well, you're right. There are 1,009 biographies of Winston Churchill. Lord. (laughs) But fortunately, in the last decade, and certainly since the last major biography of Churchill came out, there has been an avalanche of new information. King George VI diaries were made available to me and uh, I'm the first Churchill biographer to be able to use them and he met the Prime Minister every Tuesday of the Second World War So uh, and then wrote down everything that Churchill said. So that's invaluable for getting into the hopes and fears of Winston Churchill. But fortunately, there have also been the verbatim accounts of the War Cabinet. There have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College, Cambridge. There's been Ivan Meisky's diaries, the diaries of the uh, Soviet ambassador. So it's invaluable stuff. So much myth-making about this figure, uh, understandably so because of the wartime experience, but also because of Churchill's character and a certain propensity to myth-making about himself. So what formative experiences would we need to know to understand the man beneath it all? Well, I think the 
really the important formative experience was um, when he was still a Harrow schoolboy um, at the age of 16 when in 1891 he said, told a friend that he was going to be the man who would save London and save the country from the terrible, um, in his words, great upheavals and terrible struggles that were to come. And this was a sense of his own destiny, something that uh, he really um, believed in uh, intimately. And the enduring fascination, not just for Brits, but in America, across political divides, he's cited by President Trump, by President Clinton, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, you you know, you name it, if you want to place on the political stage, Churchill is your man. It's become something of a kind of rite of passage to have a view of, of Churchill. Do you find that difficult to disentangle from the actual life? Well, very difficult, but the thing to do is basically ignore everything that's happened since his death in 1965. Don't worry about how often he was quoted and the effect he had on politics post-1965. If you're writing biography of a man, you should really cut it at the point of his death. And you talk about new papers being available, not least the, the King's Letters, which must have been rather exciting for a historian who likes to have a, a source in their hand. But what have we learned about him that we didn't know already? Well, we've learned what an extraordinarily passionate and uh, emotional man he was. He burst into tears no fewer than 50 times during the Second World War. You can imagine uh, how unnerving it might be if the Prime Minister to burst into tears in the House of Commons today. It would be really uh, quite uh, shocking. But he would do it all the time. He was a profoundly um, lachrymose figure and also a very emotional man. The lachrymose figure because of the strains of the war or because of an underlying depression which he talked about himself? I don't believe he only actually once uh, declared that he had black dog and that was when he was writing to his wife in August 1911 at a time when the phrase black dog was also used by Edwardian matrons to explain the bad temper of their their charges. Actually, his depression is only mentioned a couple of times by his doctor in these enormous diaries and both of the times came at a time when anyone would have been depressed. The first time was the fall of Singapore made him very depressed, so did the fall of Tobruk in 1942, and of course the Dardanelles catastrophe in the First World War made him consider suicide. However, anyone would have been depressed at those things. We also know that he chaired the uh, Defence Committee of the War Cabinet over a thousand times during the Second World War at all times of day and night, which um, he would not have been able to do if he were a uh, a serious depressive, manic depressive, or let alone, as some people have said, bipolar. That is interesting. So you you really think that his mental state was consistent throughout the war? Yes, I do. Um, He did self-medicate with alcohol which meant that he kept a a level blood alcohol level pretty much throughout the entire Second World War. But then there's a marvellous line from C.P. Scott who said that Winston Churchill couldn't have been an alcoholic because no alcoholic could have drunk that much. This is is one way of looking at it. So just nail for us, if you could, what you think the significance is of, of Churchill in the Second World War. We all know the famous phrases, the famous speeches, but have we understood correctly the impact that he has. I think that the most important things he did were firstly to stop any peace agreement with Adolf Hitler in May 1940 at the time of the Dunkirk evacuation. That was vital. Britain mustn't have made peace then. The next thing he did was, of course, 
draw the Americans into the Mediterranean sphere. The Americans initially wanted to just cross straight over into um, northwest France, but instead he persuaded them that North Africa and then Sicily and then Italy were the best way to draw down German power before the knockout blow at D-Day. And the third thing was, of course, sustaining morale during the Second World War, which he did do with these completely extraordinary sublime speeches. The sublime speeches and the quotable quotes... What gives Churchill rarefied background, clearly very gifted with words, but what gives him this connection to the ordinary Britain at that point? What does he understand about mass communication? He understood a lot about radio and about um, newspapers, and but most of all, he understood about um, public speeches. He had made many thousands of them over the previous 40 years. He uh, spoke not just in the House of Commons, but up and down the country and around the world, in fact. And so he had a sense of what worked with crowds, as well as the interaction with the microphone, to a truly extraordinary degree. And he believed in what he called that that noble thing, the English sentence, and the way to deploy it. We're all for that on The Economist Asks. When we look at the revisionist histories of church, and in some ways, once someone has emerged as so great a figure, the fun begins really, doesn't it, in terms of looking at parts of the legacy that should come under greater scrutiny. And it struck me that there is a revisionism of Churchill both on the right, which I think is your natural home as a historian, from the late Morris Cowling, for instance, in the, in the 1980s, and from the left, from also the late Christopher Hitchens. Why is there a sort of agreement on revisionism left and right about him? Well, the right blames him for the collapse of the empire, for letting in socialism in 1945 and for appeasing Stalin, none of which he's really uh, responsible for. The left hate him because he believed in... um, racial divides and uh, and racial hierarchies also obviously for winning elections being a tory and um, and being anti-socialist so coming together the two revisionist wings with another very important aspect which is the internet cyberspace conspiracy theorists all come together to create a sort of new quite vicious attack on churchill well let's take the christopher hitchens attack line. He wrote in The Atlantic in about 2002, I was brought up on the cult of Churchill. He said, but he failed to preserve his own empire and succeeded only in aggrandizing two much larger ones. Why is he wrong? Well, he's wrong because it would have been impossible to have uh, defended the British Empire. We were exhausted. We'd spent um, one third of our national wealth fighting the Second World War. Um, there was no way we could hang on to India. And without India, there wasn't much point in having the rest of the empire. So it's um, a classic Hitchens line where you basically blame somebody for something that he has absolutely nothing to do with. But let's talk about that colonial legacy. This obviously precedes the Second World War, but it probably is the area where certainly if I look at American scholarship and writing on Churchill, there is most fervent criticism of him. And it's over the Amritsar massacre in 1919. You've dealt with that not only in the book, but over the years, and short form, and you must forgive me if I'm caricaturing you, you think that that, uh, there is much less blame than has been attached. Well, he actually was all in favour of um, cashiering the general responsible for the massacre. The Amritsar massacre was the one extremely bloody incident between the Raj being established in 1858 and 90 years later when we uh, left India, where 379 people were killed in a bloodbath that um, was unnecessary, 
caused by a British general. That figure uh, is disputed on the Indian side, isn't it? Puts the casualty till much bigger. Well, they also add wounded as dead, um, which we obviously don't. So um, it's, uh, as you say, uh, disputed. However, even if it's a it's larger figure, it uh, sort of underlines my point, really, even more, because uh, Churchill was in favour of having General Dyer chucked out of the army, and when the Conservatives attacked him and the Secretary for India over it, he fought back and said that uh, terror is not part of the British pharmacology. He was, therefore, actually against the sort of whitewashing of the Amritsar massacre, not in favour of it. And you don't think you're in danger of whitewashing something that happened in a particular way because of that imperial relationship with India and with people on the ground. Yes, it was a terrible disaster. But the fact is that Churchill was on the right side of history when he came to criticise it in the House of Commons. He was a colonialist, of course he was, and uh, the empire was tremendously important to him. But some of the criticisms that are being made, such as that he uh, wanted to gas Iraqis, for example, when you go back to the papers, which are usually at Churchill College archives in Cambridge, you see that, in fact, the actual letter itself talks about lacrimotary gas, tear gas, not phosgene or mustard gas or chlorine gas. Still gas. Yeah, but you you get um, t- you, you cry rather than die. <laughs> There's a huge difference there, and I think you'll accept. How do you avoid the charge of getting too close to your subject, given that you have followed him for, for so long, written so much about him? The, the accusation of hagiography is raised by some reviews. It must be said, not all. The Economist, along with the Spectator, for instance, here in Britain, said that you'd given a, a balanced account of him. But I think a, a reviewer in The Times did use the word hagiography. Are you sensitive on that point? Not really, no, because The, um, the Times was a bit of an outlier of the 10 rave reviews. He's the only stinker. And I know also personally that I criticise him, Churchill, for the abdication crisis, for women's suffrage, for the um, return to the gold standard, for the Dardanelles crisis. I'm extremely harsh on him for many, many reasons. So I know that this is not a hagiography. And if you look at those things, and obviously they're very disparate and he has a a long career in extraordinarily difficult times, and we'll come to our own in a moment – Is there anything that you can say, yes, I can see why he makes those errors? Is there a continuity in the way that great men and women often make great errors for an underlying reason? Well, first of all, his his love of the empire was one of the reasons that he uh, supported, he tried to stop Indian home rule. And you see that again and again. He will put the what he sees as the best interests of the empire before his own political best interests. And the other thing is this passion. You know, he was a passionate monarchist, so he supported the wrong side in the abdication crisis, for example. Very often, his heart leads his What head. do you deem to be the wrong side? Well, the uh, king over the eighth uh, side. So all in all, it was uh, the losing side in this case, of course, as well. So he was all set to try to prevent the best people in the royal family, who were King George VI and uh, the late Queen Mother, um, becoming king and queen, which um, in retrospect, he himself at the next coronation accepted was the wrong thing to have done. We lured you in to talk about what Churchill would do now. Well, he'd certainly have a pretty full plate of geopolitics, wouldn't he, in the the turbulent world. If he were running the show now, what do you think he'd deem most important or threatening? It's a very difficult one. Mary Soames, uh, Winston Churchill's daughter, said you should never play the game of what would Winston do because, of course, he died in 1965. So we don't know how, for example, he'd have voted in the Brexit referendum half a century later. But uh, since this is what this podcast is entitled, I am willing 
willing to go down. You're rolling with us. I'm rolling We're with grateful. you. We're grateful. Yeah, yes. Um, well, I think that he obviously would have put uh, Britain's relations with Europe first. He was a architect of the European Union, the European movement. He was the first person to say, let Europe unite. And uh, he got people very excited, especially European federalists uh, like Gladwin Jebb, the Foreign Office Panjandrum, and both of his sons-in-law, who were also leaders of this uh, movement, very excited that Britain might be epicentral to uh, a new Europe, which would prevent, as he said, the Teuton fighting the Gaul. However, Actually, when he became Prime Minister in 1955, he spent four years doing nothing whatsoever to bring Britain closer. In fact, he spent the whole time talking about the American connection, the special relationship, the uh, connection with the Commonwealth and so on. And so you have Churchill's words standing out very starkly against his actions. And why do you think that is? Is that just a matter of timing? And if you're on the European integrating federalist Europe side of the the balance sheet, would you be right to claim Churchill as long as you stop in 1945? No, um, I think you can go up to um, up to 1951. Um, but he did want to stop the Teuton from fighting the Gaul. You know, twice in his lifetime, he had seen his friends, dozens and dozens of them, dying in uh, in those two world wars, and so he ne- he wanted never to happen again. But that's a huge jump from that position to believing that the United Kingdom should be part of the whole um, federalist agenda. And he understood popular appeal very well. He presented himself as a figure people could identify with but also have a joke about the cigar, the bowler hat. What would he make of the modern populist? What do you think he'd make of Donald Trump? It's so difficult because, as you say, he was somebody who understood the brand in politics. He always used to go further than everybody else. He would have been superb on Twitter, for example. Many of his jokes would have fitted very nicely into 280 characters. Give me your favourite Churchill tweet, had he... uh... Okay. Well, when had his thumbs poised. <laughs> when his private secretary came and said that um, their cook had been made pregnant as the result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona, Winston Churchill said, "Obviously, not one of the two gentlemen." That fits into two hundred and eighty characters, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of uh, up thumbs and down thumbs on that one. <laughs> You say that he saved liberty, which is it's a big claim, but he's probably one of the historical shoulders who can bear that claim credibly. Do you think that with the rise of what we now call populism and anti-democratic forces in, in Europe, arguably in America, that we are forgetting that? Well, I, I take issue with you in America. I don't believe that Donald Trump is not going to have another general, another general election in America. Um, I think that... There are other democracy, ways democracy is threatened. Well, um, and I don't think Donald Trump is responsible for threatening them. I think that uh, clearly, though, that is the case in some uh, Eastern European countries at the moment, and there's no democracy in uh, Russia. And Churchill would see all of those things as a very worrying development. But he was always quite pro-German, um, apart from, obviously, under Hitler. So I think that uh, that would be a positive development. We haven't talked a, a, about Russia and we should partly because it's so formative in the way that he he views the, the map and of course the run up to the Second World War. What does Churchill make of, of Russia? I mean, everyone remembers the, the quote about the riddle wrapped in the enigma, you know, brackets. Mystery, of, riddle, enigma. Mystery. Go on, you give it to us. <laughs> no, You're the no, it's a, no, it's a, it's a uh, Russia is a mystery wrapped inside a riddle 
inside an enigma. No. Ah, damn. Anyway, those are the three words, key things. <laughs> oh, Twitter, you're going to enjoy this one. <laughs> but we get the, we, you know, I think we, yeah. most of us will have heard that. What does that really tell us, other than saying Russia is incredibly difficult to understand, about his view? Well, I think it was very difficult to understand when he said that in 1939, because he was trying to work out which way they were going to jump. However, actually, it... Um, Russia isn't so much enigmatic any longer under under President Putin. I think we do know where he's heading. We do know the things that he's willing to do. Um, and we do know the ruthlessness with which he's willing to, um, to carry out those things. So, in fact, I think Churchill would have um, spotted Putin and put him in the long cursus honorum from the early Russian leaders who he denounced so spectacularly, like Lenin and Trotsky. And in terms of grand strategy, do you think he would be for standing up to Putin or indeed, even in a military and defence sense, being robust, being hawkish? Or do you think he'd be playing a kind of Kissingerian game? Well, he changed um, himself, of course. Once the um, Russians had exploded a nuclear device in 1949, he went from being very hawkish towards them to actually being extremely dovish. All the way through, he he kept changing his view on, uh, on Russia. But the one thing you can see in the middle all the way through, the, the sort of thread, is that he always put British interests first. And what should Britain's politicians learn from him, whether it's Theresa May there suffering in the Golgotha of those Brexit negotiations or Boris Johnson on the right of the party nowadays or at least uh, trying to forge a different path on the European Union? I think all politicians have got an enormous amount to learn from Churchill. Churchill himself at the coronation luncheon said to a young American student, uh, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. I know that Boris Johnson obviously did uh, study history. He wrote a uh, best-selling biography of Winston Churchill, and so I'm not going to include him in the general condemnation of politicians who, um, who don't. But I think that it is important to study history and even write it if you can. Plenty of very good politicians have done that in the past, and Churchill himself managed to write 37 books. They were very frequent cry against politicians, particularly in, in Britain today, is, is the lack of leadership. Would that be a fair criticism from the Churchillian perspective? Well, the problem with, with Churchill, of course, is that he was out of office for 10 years, the key 10 years of the 1930s, when he might have been able to have done something to stop the Second World War. Uh, he wasn't in a position really to show leadership as such in running a country at a time when it really mattered. When he did become Prime Minister, of course, he showed absolutely sublime leadership. But wartime leadership is ultimately completely different from peacetime leadership. Of course it is. People aren't actually dying. However bad Brexit gets, I don't believe anyone's going to die from it. So it's an existentially different setup. What honourable reason, you talk about honourable reasons when he was wrong about things in your book. What honourable reason would you give for his opposition to women's suffrage? Um, because he was in favour of it before he was against it, rather like Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Clinton and the Iraq War. He felt that the radical suffragettes, the um, the aggressive, violent um, side of the suffragette movement, delegitimised the straightforward, immoral one. And unfortunately, he therefore took a uh, stance that was completely against the run of history. Because, of course, he could have 
back the suffragist case, in which case he could have distanced himself from the suffragettes. It's a subject, I should say, that The Economist wrestled with in its leaders in this period in a rather fascinating it way. It was also very different, difficult, of course, because he was a um, liberal and the one million women, better off women that they were attempting to give the vote to were likely to be voting Tory more than liberal. So there was an internal power struggle within the parties, which people often forget. That, that, that's often forgotten. But also just to explain to those who might say, hang on, Winston Churchill, liberal, Winston Churchill thought of as great conservative leader. These categories, these party descriptors changed over time. Was he in the end more a liberal than a conservative? No, no, no. He spent 20 years in the Liberal Party. But the reason he went there was because of free trade. And when the conservatives went back to adopting free trade, he went back to the Conservative Party. So he was a free trader much more than he was either a liberal or a conservative. So many screen Churchills have been flung at us recently. Do you like any of the portrayals of Churchill on screen? And who, yes. who would you queue up for? Oh, I love Gary Oldman. I thought that he looked like, just like him. He sounded like him. He had that twinkle in the eye that was just like him. You ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might. I... Uh, must say that although um, Brian Cox is a great actor, when he played a Churchill in a movie that had 120 factual errors in the two hours of the movie, I had no time for it whatsoever. You collect some Churchill memorabilia, I think. What, what piece would you recommend that we contemplated to understand your subject best? I have a docket that um, he had signed in 1919 when he was staying at the Hotel Majestic in Paris at the time of the Paris Peace Conference, so the Versailles Peace Conference. And uh, I think when I look at that, I'm reminded of his uh, tremendous sense of magnanimity uh, towards the defeated enemy. He didn't want to go down the hang the Kaiser route. But when recently an astronaut tried to use that uh, Churchillian phrase about magnanimity, he was trolled so viciously on Twitter that he, in my view, completely cowardly, but nonetheless understandable, I suppose, um, backed down and uh, said that he wanted to uh, to educate himself about Churchill's crimes. Uh, frankly, this um, uh, this is a complete absurdity and the man really just needs to educate himself about Churchill full stop. We've put you on the spot a bit about the flaws in someone you clearly admire very much, but what would you elevate as his defining quality? I think the fact that he managed to combine both physical courage, extraordinary physical courage again and again in his life, but also moral courage in standing up against the um, against the consensus, both on the Nazis and also after the war on the communists. He said that uh, in an essay of his that courage is rightly esteemed the greatest of all the values because it underpins all the others. And I think that's what we should remember about Winston Churchill. Andrew Roberts, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So what do you reckon our leaders today should learn from Churchill? We're on email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And let us know what you make of Andrew Roberts' assessment of Churchill. If you'd like to subscribe, do go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. And don't forget, please, to rate us on your podcast app. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>